We're in, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. So if you would, even if you're at home, in your PJs, stand up with us. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. All of you here, let's stand together. Uh, if you're able, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And then after I read it, uh, I'll say, thanks be to God. Um, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God. I got that backwards. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You say, thanks be to God. And of course, when you say, thanks be to God, you're thanking the Lord that he's given us his word. He didn't have to speak, and he did. And so we, we have words from the Lord that guide and direct us in our, in our um, hearts. But also, as you say, thanks be to God, the things that the Holy Spirit teaches you today or convicts you, let that be a time where you're going to, from the beginning, you're, you're prefacing the listening of the sermon by saying, I want to obey. I want to hear those things, and I want to say yes to them. So starting at verse 1 of chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation uh, to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, of the, not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And I pray that as we look at it this morning, um, that you would help us, Lord, have great insight by the power of the Holy Spirit into your word. And that as we we read it and as we think about it, um, that you would use it mightily in our own hearts to equip us, uh, to encourage us, and God, to direct us in our sanctification. Um, We love you. We praise you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, if you haven't been with us, 2 Corinthians, of course, uh, is after 1 Corinthians. Uh, and so we have two letters in the Bible that Paul wrote to Corinth. But Paul actually wrote four letters total to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians is the fourth of all of them. And so uh, there was some back and forth definitely between the two of them. And Paul had, right before he written this letter... He had written what's called a severe letter where he had rebuked them. And as he rebuked them, uh, they were feeling, he knew, pretty down. And so uh, as he begins this letter, he's wanting to reconcile with them. And he's wanting to um, really do three big main things in the letter of 2 Corinthians. In chapters 1 through 7, he's wanting to, um, as, compa- as compared to 2 Corinthians, which is letter 4. And so he's wanting to uh, reconcile with them, but also because false apostles had come in and kind of badmouthed Paul. He's wanting to let them know, I actually have um, an apostolic position. And so since I'm an apostle of, G- of Jesus Christ, an, an apostle meaning, you know, the capital A, big title, big, big deal. Uh, I have authority when I write to you and I say these things. And so in chapters 1 through 7, he's defending his apostolic position, uh, position, but also reconciling with them. 
in, verses, in chapters 8 through 9, which we'll, we'll get to later. Of course, he's talking about generosity. And then chapters 10 through 13, he's going to finish with a challenge. So we're in chapters 1 through 7, chapter 3 right now. And so as we're looking at this, uh, as we've been going through thus far, since he had written that severe letter, he's needing to reconcile with them. But he knows that they're feeling sad. So the first sermon we looked at... He wrote, he wrote about comfort and how he know, Paul knew he needed to comfort them because they were feeling down. Then he talked about the, about the necessity of reconciliation. That was Sermon 2, how the Corinthians and Paul need to reconcile. And then Paul talked about forgiveness and how Paul is totally willing to forgive them even though they are the ones that have that have comfort offended him. And so when we're pulling into chapter 3 now, we're still in that same kind of thought where he's talking about comfort, talking about reconciliation, talking about forgiveness. But now um, he's letting them know, listen, I don't have to kind of... Uh, prove myself as a minister anymore. But if I were going to prove myself as a minister, these are the competencies that a minister should have. And he's, again, just trying to continually defend his apostolic position, but, but bring he and the Corinthians back together. And so in verses 1 through 6, we're, we're zooming in on this little snippet where Paul is wanting them to see, this is who I am as a minister of the gospel. And as we're going to look at, whenever we see that Paul's talking about that, we actually see five competencies of a minister of the gospel. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well then I don't have to I don't have to pay attention, click my pen, put it back, pull up my pillow, pull over the blanket, go back to sleep on the couch or even in this room. I'm not ever going to be a full-time minister of the gospel, so this doesn't apply to me. And maybe that's true. Maybe you won't be. Uh, maybe you will be. So what I want you to do is since Paul's talking about ministers of the gospel and likely what he's talking about are those that are in what would be kind of the 21st century equivalent of full-time ministry. Uh, I want you to pull yourself back up uh, to 30,000 feet and say things you need to think about. But we're all, according to 2 Corinthians 5.18, ministers of reconciliation. We're all Christians, and so we've all been giving the ministry of reconciliation. So when you see these five competencies, you should still internalize them for yourself and say, these things should be happening in my life since I'm supposed to accomplish the Great Commission. Because every one of us are supposed to accomplish the Great Commission. So while I've listed them and written them in forms of say, hey, this is for a pastor, and I'm going to be talking largely about what, what competencies of pastors should look like ministers of the gospel inside of a church, still make the mind move over and say, okay, I can still apply this to my life. And I'm going to try to do that as we go through them as well. But that's what we're looking at today. Um, but pastoral ministry. Paul is definitely a pastor. And so I want to talk about uh, the difficulties of pastoral ministry, not because I'm looking for sympathies, because I want you to, uh, I want you to sympathize with Paul. I want you to think about what's going on in the life of Paul, but I'm going to 21st centurize it as well. That's a word. That's a word. I'm going to 21st centurize it for you. So pastoral ministry is difficult. Uh, I may be biased here, but I think that pastoral ministry is probably the most difficult profession there is in the world. Um, I don't think there's anything more difficult than that. Uh, I think it comes with the highest of highs where people get saved and the lowest of lows. I just got cancer and all that can happen in, in 10 minutes. Somebody can call you with the greatest of news and you're on the phone with them and you're like, that's awesome. And then right after that, you call somebody else who just lost their baby or lost their wife or just found out they're going to lose their wife one day for cancer and then... You're, you're devastated with them. Uh, some jobs don't have that. You know, you just kind of even kill. I, I'm an accountant. I look at numbers all day. And it's just like, you know, 
Maybe I got excited because I had a good lunch today. But, you know, other than that, it's not the big high or the big low. But pastoral ministry can have these kinds of things throughout the entire day where you're bouncing back and forth and your emotions are just erect by the end. Um, and so a pastor, he's, here, here are some, I tried to jot down, it's kind of a long paragraph, all the things I could think of just over my 11 years of pastoral ministry and 20, uh, 20 plus years of ministry of things that pastors need to have in their lives. A pastor must, in his own life, pursue holiness, have a healthy marriage, effectively be raising his children, be a student of the word that studies the word each day, effectively teach the, the word of God and do it consistently, be ready in moments of crisis in the church, whether there's deaths or cancer or infighting, um, be an effective counselor, be able to understand finances and budgeting, probably needs to be a little bit of a handyman around the building, uh, an effective leader so that he can lead all ministries, probably somewhat of a good public speaker, good at leading meetings effectively so that they're time efficient, be a deep man of prayer, be an effective evangelist, also being able, able to lead the entire church and mission, know how to manage conflict and resolution, be a long-term plan strategist so that he's always thinking long-term as well, be an excellent volunteer recruiter, know how to cast vision, know how to promote the vision so the church will actually want to follow, care for the poor in the, in the city, be an excellent spiritual encourager to all the congregants, and be excellent with time management, just to name a few. That's a pretty big, wide scope. Not too many job descriptions need to be able to have all those competencies. You know, I just need to know how to add, or I just need to know how to do computers, or I just need to know how to do a surgery. But these are pretty broad span of things uh, to be able to do. And that's why Richard Baxter says in Reformed Pastor this way, the, the path burden for the shoulders of a child. Um, or John MacArthur says it this way, the the pastoral ministry, more than any other profession, demands the best, most spiritually qualified, and the most skilled men. The standards are high for many reasons because the spiritual dimension of life is more important than the physical. Because serving God is more demanding than serving anyone else. Because his kingdom and his glory are at stake. And because his servants will face a more stringent evaluation of their service, according to Hebrews 13, 13 17, and James 3, 1. So... Um, pastoral ministry is uh, very stressful and there's a lot to it. And so here, Paul, as he's going in, is going to talk about what it means to be a pastor and what's important when, when you're, when you're uh, addressing pastoral ministry. And thus far, Paul has addressed how these false apostles had come into Corinth and started lying to them. And as he addressed these lies and how God comforts them, he's talking about how he wants to reconcile them. He talks about how he forgives them. And now after that, there's more to address, namely these false apostles that have attacked Paul. They've attacked his character, and, uh, which he's addressed thus far in the letter. And they've also attacked not just his character, which he's talked about thus far, but they've actually attacked his competency as a pastor. Uh, and so in this little section, he wants to address his competencies. And what follows is Paul's defense of his competencies. And so as he defends his competencies, it actually helps us see what are the competencies. Now, there's more. You could go to other places like the pastoral epistles and see more competencies, right? But in this little section, verses 1 through 6, Paul outlines for us five competencies of a minister of the gospel. And so uh, when we're looking at chapter 3, verses, this won't be on the, on the there, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, there's really kind of two sections, right? Uh, and the first section is verse 1 through 3, where Paul is saying, uh, the Corinthians are your, your le- is my letter of recommendation to you for the ministry and the gospel. That's, that's ver- verses 1 through 3. That's kind of the big section. 
And then in verses 4 through 6, Paul talks about his confidence and his sufficiency as a new covenant minister of the gospel. Uh, Those are kind of the the two big pillars in verses 1 through 6. But I'm going to go through and show us the five competencies as we're looking at it. So when we get to verse 1, Paul's going to uh, start by, by giving us two rhetorical questions where the answer of those two questions is a resounding no. It's no doubt, it's a no. Uh, So look at the two rhetorical questions written in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? No. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? No. In the first century, this was kind of customary where people would actually bring letters of recommendation along with them when they would go and say, no doubt, likely these false apostles had done that. They were wrong. Uh, And so Paul's writing this. Do we need these things? And these two questions indicate that Paul's saying, do I need a letter of recommendation to you so, uh, so someone can come and vouch for my character in front of you? Do I need my character to actually be vouched for to you, Corinthians? You knew me for 18 months. Do I need to have a, an actual letter of recommendation? Now, clearly this is a rhetorical question and the answer is no. But what does this tell us when Paul writes this? It tells us that the Corinthians actually know Paul. They know his character already and they don't need no, uh, a, a such letter. And so what does it tell us then about specifically Paul's competency as a minister of the gospel. It tells us that Paul needs no such letter because he already has an established reputation for godliness in front of the Corinthian church, which tells us then, therefore, the first competency, which is this. The first competency of a minister of the gospel is that they should have an established reputation for godliness. There should be an established reputation for godliness. It, you already know, if you've met them, that they, they pursue holiness, they want to be like Christ, and it's needed for a minister of the gospel. Now, taking yourselves back out, right? It's needed for you. Every Christian should have a deep desire to want to be holy, but it's absolutely imperative. That means they've taken the biblical exhortation from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 to heart, which says... But as he who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all of your conduct. That's not written to pastors, right? That's written to every Christian that's ever lived. As he who is holy has called you, you also should be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, for you shall be holy, for I am holy." That's written to every single Christian, and Paul has taken this to heart. Or spe- more specifically, as in one of the pastoral epistles where Paul is telling Timothy, this is 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself. And he's talking about his life and his godliness. He, does, he says, watch your, watch your uh, doctrine, but he also tells them to watch yourself, watch your life, actually watch your godliness. And so um, it's important for a pastor to be pursuing godliness in their life, but also they have a reputation. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, you already know this. You already know that I have a reputation for godliness. I don't need a, a letter of recommendation saying that. And so that tells us that there's a competency necessary for a minister of the gospel. Richard Baxter says, and I, I've quoted this whenever I preach about elders, but Richard Baxter says this, one of the greatest gifts a pastor can give to his congregation is, you can fill in the blank with a whole lot of things there, right? And he says, his holiness. One of the greatest things that a pastor can give to his congregation is 
not to be the best expositor, not to be the, you know, the most fried chicken, or I don't know, but instead his holiness, right? The most important thing a pastor can give to his congregation is holiness. Baxter also says, they, the church, will think, if he doesn't do this, that he does not mean as he speaks and that he does not live as he speaks. As Calvin says, uh, for never will the man take diligent care for the salvation of others who neglects his own salvation. And so if you, as a pastor, don't uh, pursue godliness with your entire life, how is it that you can actually take diligent care of those that you're trying to get to pursue holiness in your own life? So if you don't pursue holiness, people will think uh, that you actually, if you're not pursuing holiness, why would they? Uh, Baxter says it this way. How can you follow sinners with compassion in your hearts and tears in your eyes and beseech them in the name of the Lord to stop their course and return and live for Christ and never have so much compassion as your souls to do that for yourself? So you must, as a pastor, do this for yourself. And here in this text, Paul says, I have no need to provide for you a letter of recommendation to the Corinthians because you already know after 18 months, by the way, that tells us in Acts chapter 18, verse 11, that he was with them for 18 months here and he has a devoted life to Christ. And so Paul is telling them, I don't need to give you a letter of recommendation because you already know the competency of which I've lived as a char- in my character around you. Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul's saying, I don't need to give you a letter of recommendation. But he's going to do it anyway. He's going to do it anyway. Paul is going to give them a letter anyway, but it's not the way they think it's going to happen. He's literally not going to pull out a letter and say, here's the letter. Instead, he's going to turn it around on him. It's a genius move. He's going to give them, give them the letter of recommendation. And you can see it's not the way in which they think. He doesn't actually have a piece of paper and say, here it is. You know, somebody else wrote it for me. Uh, he's going to give it to them, but not like they think by saying what he says, Paul's going to turn the tables on them and prove that he's an effective, competent minister. So what's, what's at stake is his competency. He doesn't have to give him a letter of recommendation. He's going to do it anyway. And as he does it, he's going to prove to them that he's competent because he's going to point to them. Look at verse 2. He's going to say, here's my le- letter of recommendation. You're my letter of recommendation, Corinthian church. Look at verse 2. Um, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You love Jesus, don't you? There it is. I'm a competent minister because you yourselves are Christians right now. 18 months ago I came and there was nothing and look what Jesus did through me here. So yeah, there is one. And so it's, it's a brilliant move what he does. And he tells them, uh, I don't need a letter of recommendation. Verse three, and he says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. My letter of recommendation has literally been written by Jesus on your heart. So what you got? So, I mean, that's brilliant, right? That's brilliant because it, it delivers the letter, but also proves his competency by their lives. Which brings us to our second mark of the effective minister of the gospel. Competent ministers of the gospel of Christ should have been used by Jesus to transform lives. I don't know what it's written on the screen. It says something like that. But basically, if people's lives have been transformed by Jesus and a minister has been used for it, then it proves their competency. And so uh, you should look around and you should see people that are being transformed, not by the minister, right? 
ministers don't transform anybody's lives. Ministers can maybe help people make little tweaks. Little tweaks aren't transforming, right? Jesus transforms lives. But God in his infinite goodness has set up the world where he decides to use ministers of the gospel. Now, that should cause them to be humble, not braggadocious. Because they, in the end, they're not doing anything outside of Jesus. But he's helping them see a core competency for a minister is look at people and see if their lives are being transformed. They should never think they've done it themselves. Jesus has done it through them. But that is one. And Paul's saying, you're actually that. You're actually that, Corinthian church. You have been used uh, by, I've been used by Jesus to see a transformation in your, in your life. Paul's telling them that if they look at the reality that they've been saved and they've been sanctified through the truth of the gospel that he's actually preached there, you're my letter of recommendation, 2 Corinthians. And actually, if you look at verse 3, it tells us four characteristics of that letter written by Jesus uh, in verse 3 and 4. It sa- or in verse 3, it says, the letter is from Christ, you can see that in verse 3. Um, and you show that you're a letter from Christ. It, it also, that this letter is about Paul's ministry. Uh, it also says that it's inscribed by the Holy Spirit, that literally God, the Holy Spirit, wrote the letter. And it also contrasts that it's not written with ink on tablets, but written by the Holy Spirit on human hearts. So he tells us four little characteristics about the letter that's written by God on Paul. So I don't have to give you a letter of recommendation, but I'm going to, and it's you, the Holy Spirit wrote it on your heart. Pretty, pretty brilliant. So Paul is telling them that since it's been written by the Holy Spirit, Jesus wrote my letter uh, on your human heart. Now what Paul's doing here, if you're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, is he's taking uh, how the Old, Te- Old Testament records the New Covenant, and he's using that same kind of language from the Old Testament And he's telling them, as a letter of recommendation, the gospel is what's transforming. So uh, in the Old Testament, you have the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, where God makes the covenant with the Israelites. But then you also have the New Covenant, which is in the New Testament. But the New Covenant is written in the Old Testament in places. And like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, explicitly written, the New Covenant in the Old Testament. And so Paul's taking that language when the New Covenant's written in the Old Testament... And using it, Old Testament, where the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant is written. You, once you hear them, you're like, oh yeah, I know all that. All right, um, maybe. Ezekiel uh, eleven nineteen says this. And I will give them one heart and one new spirit, and I will put, with, and I'll put it within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Again, this is the new covenant written in the Old Testament, the new covenant of Jesus, um, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their, their God, and they shall be my people. And so Paul's taking that new covenant language from the Old Testament and saying that this is what the Holy Spirit has literally done in your heart, Corinthians, and that's my letter of recommendation. So the transformed lives of the Corinthians showed that Paul was a competent minister of the gospel. Now, certainly, listen, we all can look at Corinthians and say, why are you talking about transformed lives? They're a mess. They're just a disaster, Fud. Yeah, okay. But that doesn't negate the fact that they're transformed, right? We're all a mess. We're all 
a big, huge, incompetent mess when it comes to walking out sanctification, but we're also amazingly transformed. That's the good news of Jesus in the gospel, that we are a constant mess, but also constantly being sanctified. And all of us should be amazed at what Jesus is doing in our life. So if you are feeling like you're an absolute mess, that's okay, because that's what the good news of the gospel is. As soon as every day, every minute, every hour, you pinpoint that mess that you are, that's when you go to the Lord and you repent of it, and you praise God for the gospel who has forgiven you of that. That's what being transformed is. That's what the good news of the gospel is. And so don't, don't confuse the fact that just because you feel like you're a constant mess every day that you're not being transformed. You are. And that's what Paul is trying to help the Corinthians see. That's the great news of the gospel, right? That's the great news of the gospel. Effective ministers, if we're looking back at the second competency, effective ministers of the gospel should see people around them having their lives transformed by the gospel. So what does that mean? What does that tangibly look like every day of the week? What does that look like on Tuesday? What does that look like on Friday night? I got a list. I made a list. This is all the things I could think of. There's maybe more. But that means in Remedy Church, the elders of Remedy Church should see these things happen. If we're being competent, effective ministers of the gospel, we should see these things happening. But, okay, you should see these things in your life. You should see yourself seeking to help people in the faith that you know with, with this list. Here's, here's, what I, here's a list I've made. Marriages should get stronger. That's, that's what should happen. Marriages should get stronger. I have a whole list, a ton of stuff. Children should be coming to know the Lord. Your relationships that you have with your sisters and brothers and roommates, whoever, your relationships should be getting mended and they should be growing. With everybody you know. People should desire to want to live on mission if they're being transformed. They should go from uh, apathy towards deep desire to see people reach for Jesus. Churches should want to pray together more. If we're really uh, being transformed, then we should have more people at corporate prayer the first Wednesday of the month, not less. So all of you that, that are missing on, on that particular day, you should want to be with that, with, with our church. We shouldn't just have one-third or one-fourth of our church on, on corporate prayer night. We should have 100% of our church on, on corporate prayer night because we're being transformed by the gospel. If that's not happening, it's on me. It's, it is on me because this is a core competency of the church. We should be growing. And so uh, the elders should encourage you more to do it, but also you could... You could be here or sign in or whatever we're doing, whether it's corona or not. Um, but churches should want to pray together more. People should want to do, this is re- very remedy church, people should want to do community, mission, and care together. That would, that would, what it would look like if we're actually being transformed by the gospel. Also, selflessness replaces selfishness. Selflessness replaces selfishness. In other words, I don't claim my way or the highway from now on. I look at you and I say, Philippians 2, 4, 3, 4, 5, I consider others better than mine. I can serve you. Selflessness replaces selfishness. Thinking of others as more significant than yourself will be more commonplace at Remedy Church. Another one. An elevated desire to want to be a cheerful giver to your church and help those in need will start happening. An elevated desire to be a cheerful giver and want to help people in need 
around you. Another one. People will desire to be in the word more. We won't be lazy with our Bible reading. We'll actually deeply desire to be in the word every day. Not because it's legalistic, but because it's where I get to see King Jesus every day. And all I want to do is know more about King Jesus, our Savior. Another one. Um, A dramatic drop in materialism will happen in the church. We won't care as much about the newest trend. We just won't care because we want to see people meet Jesus and we want to be more holy. Another one. A ruthless persistence for personal holiness will take place in our lives. I've chosen these words precisely the way I want. A ruthless persistence for holiness will take place in our lives. We will hate sin in our lives and want to kill it. I mean, that's what, these are the words of Jesus. If your right eye causes you to sin, he literally says, now he's being hyperbolic, right? Gouge it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, rip it off. Jesus is telling us to take, ten, take sin seriously. On and on, on and on I could go. Will all this be happening perfectly all at once? <laughs> I wish, right? But no, that's the good news of the gospel. Of course it's not. But effective ministers of the gospel should see these things happening in the personal lives of the church. Church meaning the people. Because the church is the people, it's not the building. We're in a building, but we have church when we're assembled together. And so that's the second competency, is that Paul says, you should see lives being transformed by the gospel of Christ. Now don't miss out. He's talking to Corinth, right? The First Corinthians series was called Messy Church for a Reason. I mean, they're a mess. They're an absolute mess. Maybe we're a mess, but we are constantly repenting of that, trusting in the good news of Jesus to transform us. And that that little list I just quoted, you could add 25 more things to it, right? But all those things we take seriously and should be pursuing. That's that's a second competency, um, which starts leading us into the third competency if you get into verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Paul speaks of having a confidence as a minister of the gospel. And we should note that this is not confidence in himself, right? Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. This is confidence that he has through Christ towards God, which means this is the most Christocentric confidence one can have. Christocentric, it just means centered in on Jesus, centered in on Christ. And that brings us under our second heading where Paul's talking about his confidence and sufficiency as a new covenant, but brings us to our third competency, which is this. Competent ministers of the gospel should have Christocentric confidence in their calling. Competent ministers of the gospel have a Christocentric confidence in their calling. Notice Paul, he's saying his confidence is not in his personal giftings. He's not saying all my confidence is in how smart I am or how good of a preacher I am. He's saying, all my confidence is in Jesus. As a matter of fact, we know from 1 Corinthians, he intentionally um, did not try to look super gifted. He intentionally did not come. He says it this way. And I was with you. I came in weakness and fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible with words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power, so that your faith might not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I didn't come to you with all these fanciful words, trying to look all elegant and trying to look all eloquent, so that you would think, wow, Paul's awesome. I actually came with you with the simple message of the gospel, so that you would say, Jesus is awesome. 
And so he's saying my confidence was super Christocentric because if I wanted to, I could come being super elegant and you could say, wow, his confidence is in himself and his giftings. Look how awesome he is. But then that diminishes Jesus in that process. And so an effective minister says, all of my confidence in my calling is centered in on Jesus, not myself. I don't need to come trying to think, look how awesome I am. I just need to know and remember, Jesus is awesome. And if I preach his message of the gospel, as we saw last week, this message is going to go forth. And to those who are being called, it brings life to them. And for those who aren't being called, it reminds them of their death. And may the Lord bring to salvation whom he brings. And so, as it says, he does not want people to think about anything other than Jesus. He also says this something similar in Romans chapter 15, verse 18. He says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. That's what I want to talk about is what Christ is doing, not me. Paul has an unshakable confidence in his calling and ministry that's been given to him by Jesus alone for the glory of Jesus alone. And that's what he's concerned for. And so just to remember, by means of contrast, remember the false apostles who had been lying about Paul. He's saying these false apostles that had come to Corinth, they had opposed Paul and they were self-confident and they were super arrogant and they trusted in their own cleverness. They trusted in their own craftiness. They trusted in themselves trying to be confusing to the Corinthian church. And that's why Paul, right before this little section, and I mean, one verse before what we read today in chapter 2, verse 17 calls them peddlers. For we're not like such peddlers of God's word. He says they're hucksters, they're peddlers, they're no good, right? That's why he calls them peddlers and says that they, they are insincere fakers with misplaced confidence. But my confidence is in Christ alone. So as ministers of the gospel, we have a Christocentric calling. Um, confidence in our calling in Jesus Our confidence is in Christ alone. Now, it's easy for us to think our confidence should be in our giftings or what we're doing and what we're capable of. But I just want to caution, not just pastors, but all of us, don't lean in on your own giftings and have a confidence in that. Instead, intentionally point people to Jesus and not how awesome you perceive that you think you are. Because in the end, none of us are awesome. We really aren't. I mean, I think you're awesome, and I love you, but ultimately, our confidence is not in that, right? Our confidence is in Christ. So that brings us into the fourth uh, mark, which is in verse 5. To keep us from thinking that we're awesome, Paul's going to talk about how we are actually sufficient in Christ anyway. So if you see that in verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us. None of your giftings came from you anyway. You didn't conjure up that gifting. If you have anything, anything, it's because God gave it to you. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency, here it is, is from God. So any competencies we have, we didn't create those things ourselves. They actually came from God anyway. This is tremendously important, which is number four, uh, fourth competency. Not only are we, uh, third one, our confidence is in Christ, Christocentric, But number four, competent ministers of the gospel of Christ must humbly depend on God's power. We humbly depend on God's power. This is the Holy Spirit. We have to be 
constantly depending on the Holy Spirit. He helps the Corinthian church understand later on in this, uh, in this text when he's writing about himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he's closing with his final challenges in ten, chapters 10 through 13. In chapter 12, he actually says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He says that. When I am weak, then I am strong. What does that mean when he says that? It means this. Um, he wants in me, which actually means if I'm actually at my strongest, because if I'm strong, I'm strong. But if I'm weak, then Jesus is strong, and I'm actually at my strongest at that point. I, here's my strength, and here's my weakness. But when I'm weak, Jesus is strong, and that means I'm actually stronger, because my strength is nowhere near, like Jesus should be way up there. My strength is actually nowhere near. So when I'm at my weakest, I'm actually at my strongest. When I'm at my strongest, I'm not at my strongest because when I'm at weakest, I'm actually, is Christ in me? And that's when I'm at my strongest. And that's what he's trying to help them see. That's when I'm most relying on God's power is when I'm at my weakest. And so fourth competency of a minister is that we humbly depend on God's power. And so for when I'm weak, then I'm actually strong because his strength is always stronger than mine. Ministers struggle forth every second of the day. And let's just pull it back over here. You Christians, we all, and I'm a Christian too, we all struggle forth every moment of the day in God's strength and energy, not our own. That's how we live our lives. We go forth in Jesus' power. Colossians chapter 1, I love this verse. Verses 28 and 29, it says it this way. When we're talking about uh, struggling forth in God's power, not our own, this is how Colossians 1 says it. Jesus is the one we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may one day present them mature in Christ. And that for this is what I toil for, to present everyone in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that works so powerfully within me. So our desire is to present everyone, um, as he says, mature in Christ. That's my daily lifetime struggle. That's all of our lifetime struggles. We want everybody we know to be sanctified in Christ so that they will be presented to Jesus as a fragrant offering. And this, is my, this is my life struggle. How do I do that, as he says? I do it with all of his energy that works powerfully within me. The moment we do that, on our own energy, we're done. We're done. And so the fourth competency of a minister is that we depend humbly on God's power. This means that effective ministers are not the ones that have the most talents and gifts. Effective ministers are not the ones that have the most talents and gifts. They can be effective, but the effective ministers are the ones actually that don't rely on that, but rely on God's power. Robert Murray McShane says it this way. It's not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful, and that's awful in the good sense, awful weapon in the hand of God. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Awful in the good sense. Um, John MacArthur says it this way. Paul served humbly in the Spirit's power fully acknowledging that his adequacy was from God, who alone was able to make him effective. Who alone was able to make him effective. Which means you and I, as believers, right? As believers, we struggle forth every day, not in our own energy, but in God's. So what do we do? What does that mean then? That means every moment we pray to the Lord, fill me with your spirit right now. Help me walk and trust in your power 
I don't want to do anything today in my own power because I don't want to get any of the glory because I don't deserve any of the glory. You deserve all the glory. So fill me right now with this decision, with this next step, with this conversation, with that relationship that needs to be mended, with that pursuit. of Lord, help me humbly depend on you so that you can work and not depend on me. Um, Ministers that rely on their own power, they will burn out. They will tap out eventually. They will say, I'm done five, ten years in ministry full time. If you're doing it on your own power, I've seen it. Like I I went to Christian college and graduated with a bunch of guys. and We're all going to go in ministry. And then I went to seminary after that and graduated with a bunch of guys that were going to go in ministry. And I keep in touch with them. And about half of them in ministry right now. Half of them. That's just the way it works. I have no idea why, but they either quit and go get a different job or they kill themselves, literally. And so if they don't, if ministers of the gospel don't rely on their own power, they will burn out, they will tap out, they won't last to ministry, or they'll just eventually end their own life. Um, And that can't be the case. So what can you learn from this? What can you learn from this. This is what you can learn. Make 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 or Colossians chapter 1, the way you do the Great Commission. Think about the Great Commission. We quote it every Sunday. And make this verse, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. The way that we fulfill the Great Commission is by knowing our sufficiency is from God. Um, One commentator, Garland, says it this way. Here's why. There is an infinite reservoir of grace provided by God's empowering spirit. There is an infinite reservoir of grace provided by God's empowering spirit. And there is a depleting, dripping faucet of ability in my life. So which one do I want? This dripping faucet that is going to run out or the infinite ocean reservoir of God's grace in my life. That is the only way that we will continue in ministry and fulfilling the Great Commission is depending on His grace. We will run out eventually and we'll quit or give up, which um, means all ministers of all the gospel in some sense must humbly depend on God's power in their life every day. Every one of you who are believers in Christ, we're all called to fulfill the Great Commission. You must do it in God's power, not your own strength. Leads us to our final mark of an effective minister of the gospel. Verse 6. You read verse 6 with me. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Read it one more time. Who has made us sufficient, here it is, ministers of a new covenant. Now, Let's just think about this for a second, all right? I know you caught it because you're all brilliant readers, right? What's Paul doing right now? He is defending his apostolic position to the Corinthians, right? So in this moment, we would all expect if he's defending his apostolic position for him to call himself an apostle. He doesn't call himself an apostle in verse 6, right? He's just letting them have it in these first chapters letting them know these false preachers are wrong. And you would think, and he would say, he has made me a sufficient apostle. That's not what he does. He calls himself a minister of the new covenant. Minister, not an office, not an elder, not a deacon, but a broad kind of 
word that just says someone who comes alongside and renders service to those in, in the name of God. This is, this is kind of what he's talking about. Which means this. Um, I think by doing that, uh, it helps all of us see that every person that's a believer is being incorporated into this truth here. Every person is being to the message. He's moving it and saying, here's the core competencies of me as a, as a pastor and the way that I am a messenger. And now he's going to say, here's a core competency and making sure I get the message right, which is the last one. Number five, here it is. Competent ministers of the gospel must preach the new covenant gospel. If we're going to be competent ministers, we must preach the gospel, the good news. We don't preach anything else. We don't candy coat it. We don't sugarcoat it. We leave the results to Jesus. We say it nice. We, we don't be mean, right? We preach the truth and love, Ephesians 4.15. We don't tell everybody that you're going to hell and laugh and think it's funny because it's not. But we still preach the gospel, right? We preach the new, that's what he says. We are ministers of the new covenant. We preach the good news of Christ. The false apostles, the Judaizers at this particular time, they preached a false gospel. They preached works righteousness. They said, sure, you need Jesus, of course, but you also need this particular of the law to be righteous. Wrong. Wrong. Galatians 1 is just, Paul destroys this argument. So we don't want to be like the false apostles that had come into Corinth. True preachers of the gospel always make sure to make the difference, the the key distinction between law and gospel, which is what the new covenant is. That's what he's doing. For the letter kills, the law kills, but the spirit gives life. The gospel gives life. We always want to make big distinctions between law and gospel. That's what I say. Competent ministers of of gospel preach the new covenant gospel. They don't mix law and gospel and make you think that you have to have law and gospel. They say, no, separate those things out. Here's the law. It kills Now, here's the gospel. You have to hear the law. Everybody has to hear it. But once you hear the law, you say, now that's law. Now, here's gospel. Here's good news. Here's how you get saved. It's not through the law. The law is given to you for the sole purpose of realizing you're dead. You can't do anything. There's no way you can save yourself. And that is bad news. But don't think about that anymore besides the fact that here's the good news. And the way to not be dead anymore is trusting Christ. And so competent ministers of the gospel always make the distinction between law and gospel. All New Testament preachers must do this because, as it says in verse 6, the law brings death, the letter kills. As it says, the gospel brings life, the spirit gives life. Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law was given to us just as a tutor to help us see that we need Jesus. That's what it's for. Uh, One commentator, Scott Haifman, says, while the old age, while in the old age, in the Old Testament, the locus, and that's just a fancy word for like location, the locus of God's activity in Revelation was in the law. And in the new age, the New Testament, according to Ezekiel, which we just read, um, God will be at work now, not in the law, in the heart. The law is impotent to change one's heart. The potency is in the Holy Spirit's work in the heart by the gospel. So the gospel is massively potent, right? The law is impotent, but the gospel is massively potent. Thus, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, which I just read, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him 
crucified. I came preaching the good news of the gospel. And that's it. This means the new covenant gospel is cross-centric and resurrection-centric. And that's the good news. Competent ministers of the gospel will not preach salvation through legalism or law-keeping. Yeah, just follow these rules and that's all you need. You say, here are the rules and you've broken them all. That's bad news. But don't think that that's the way to be saved. Instead, Christ has kept the law perfectly for you. So trust in Christ to have kept it for you. And now all my hope and trust is the fact that he did that. He, I'm banking on him. When I go to heaven and I say, he says, this isn't going to happen, right? Why should I let you in? But people play this out. You say, well, you shouldn't. <laughs> the only reason I should be in here is because I'm trusting in Christ. So that's it. Like we, we, don't, we don't ever depend upon ourselves. And the competent minister doesn't preach legalism. Instead, he preaches Christ crucified for sinners. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. He preaches Christ risen for our justification. Romans 4.25. And that Christ is making ever intercession for us right now before God the Father. Hebrews 7.25. Romans 8.34. We preach that self. It all is through Christ. And so the message of the new covenant preacher is this. And this is the message. If you are an unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever or even a longtime follower of Jesus, either one, you need to hear the gospel message. You need to hear the gospel message as an unbeliever to get saved. You need to hear the gospel message as a longtime believer to stay saved, to remember constantly that all my hope is not in my performance because it's so easy for us as soon as we get saved to say, now that I'm saved, I really need to make sure God loves me by believing in Jesus. <laughs> it's not by anything else. We are saved and sanctified through the same thing, the good news of the gospel. And so the message for us is that we continually preach to ourselves the gospel of Jesus. People cannot hear this unless someone goes to them and preaches. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Unbelievers do not know this unless we go. That's why the Great Commission is necessary. And so here, when he says that we are ministers of the new covenant in verse 6, that means everybody in this room and everybody that's a believer that's watching. We're all ministers of the new covenant. And all of us, as it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, all of them must go and preach the good news. So you wait, wait a second. What do you mean by preach? You're the preacher. That's not me. That's what it, you're, you're preacher chambers or preacher fud. No, I'm not. Um, pastors might preach, but my title is not preacher. My title is pastor. And there's a difference. I do preach, but so do you. My title is pastor. All of our titles are are saints. All of our titles are congregants. And so all of us are preachers in a sense. Not everyone's a pastor, but all of us are ministers of reconciliation. Every single one of us. So every one of us will preach the good news. And that just means, it doesn't mean you're staying here and have a, a mic on. It just means whenever you sit down with someone at coffee or call your brother or sister on the phone or talk to your your roommate that's not a believer or whatever, you sit across from them and you tell them the good news of the gospel. You minister to them by telling them the gospel. Everybody 
is called into the ministry in some sense. You might not be called into full-time ministry, but everyone, the moment you became a Christian, hope someone told you this, you're called in ministry now. I don't know what your vocation is, but you're already called in ministry. And so you have to live your life thinking that way. And so since that's the case, um, Paul curiously doesn't say that he's an apostle. He says that he's a minister, which means we're all part of this New Testament context that we are all ministers. Every single person is supposed to be doing that according to 2 Corinthians 5.18. So what does this mean then? What's the application? Here it is. You already know the five. I'm just going to take those five competencies and directly tell you at home or in this room, here's the application for you. Number one, you need to pursue godliness with your entire being, with every fiber of your being, because Jesus, because you're in Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit. God calls us to be holy. Therefore, we should be holy. Trust in Christ, trust in the gospel, repent of sin, and renew your mind, saying that Christ has forgiven me. Gospel-centered holiness is what we're talking about. Not legalistic, gospel-centered holiness. First thing you should do is pursue holiness with every fiber of your being. Hate sin like Jesus hates sin and kill it. Number two, look around you and be a part of the church that is having their lives transformed by Jesus' gospel. We're supposed to have transformed marriages, relationships, etc. Remember that list I wrote? Um, Be around and be a part of that. Give thanks for the relationships and the marriages that he's transforming in your life. Get in on the action of corporate prayer and Bible reading and all the things that we talked about. Get in on that. Be a part of it. Jump in and say, I'm not going to be on the sidelines glad that that's happening, being transformed. Number three, you've been called by Jesus, so therefore be humble and boast in nothing except for the cross of Christ, Galatians 6.14. Number four, every day you wake up, don't try to live one second in your own power because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, devour 1 Peter 5.8. He wants to destroy us. So struggle forward always in Christ's energy and power. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Lastly, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel and always use words. Preach the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Preach it to your spouse. Preach it to your kids. Preach it to your community group. Preach it to your neighbor. Preach it to anyone that will listen. Preach the gospel to yourself and then work out with your concentric circles out every day in your, in your uh, life. Preach it for it is only this gospel that can save. There is no salvation in no one else but Jesus. For there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. Preach the gospel. That's what it means. So to conclude, one, one little short sentence. Trust in Christ and help everyone else around you do the same thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love, your mercy. We thank you for this text um, that helps us see that we're all really a part of uh, ministry of reconciliation and that we should have this happening in our life. Use these things we talked about to be present in our lives today so that we can live lives that glorify you and that we can have long-term effectiveness for your, for your glory. We love you. We praise you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.